This podcast is part of the How We Are Network. For information on this episode and many other like-minded shows, visit howweare.org. That's H-O-W-W-E-A-R-E dot O-R-G. One and all, I am your host, Ray Harkins, and I find myself getting really loud, and then as the talk goes on, I start to get a little more quieter. I think it's just kind of a uh, instinctual thing to yell at you first to get your attention, and then I kind of ease off, and we, we start talking in a normal voice. So, I'm your host, Ray Harkins. You are at 100 Words or Less, the podcast. The guest this week, continuing with our theme in the month of June, which is basically luminaries within the context of the punk and hardcore scene. These are people who are basically what I define as ahead of the curve. So these are people that created really compelling music, uh, are, are still active in some capacity, and are, are just really interesting people. So it just happened to sync up where I talked to a lot of these people and uh, the, the schedules worked out. So you are benefiting from that. Anyways, the guest this week is Dave Virillin. He is the vocalist for a band, a little band you may have heard called Botch, which is awesome that the band is still so readily mentioned within the context of heavy music because they, I mean, they progressive is an understatement. They really, really push the boundaries of what heavy music should be like and yeah. Great stuff. Anyways, more on him in a minute. And um, yeah, let's get some let's get some business out of the way. So for those of you who contributed in the fundraising campaign, I'm I'm here to thank you. That is that is my job because you have decided that you want to pitch in some money on a monthly basis, and I appreciate that. So two people I want to highlight. One of them is a close friend of mine, Corey Finneran. He uh, lives in the Midwest, does a great baseball podcast called Ivy Envy. And uh, if you like the Chicago Cubs, you should go check that out. But yeah, shout out to him. Love him. Great dude. Great family. I just, I love people. And he is one of them. And then uh, Melissa Schuler. I, or Maylissa, I, I could be mispronouncing your name. And if I do, I apologize. But uh, I don't know you. And the fact that you listen to the show is absolutely incredible. I love that. So you should email me because, you know, I, I want to have that direct feedback and correlation of the people who are supporting the show. So thank you to both of you because you are great and your uh, your, your fun stickers and, and buttons and stuff are in the mail soon. And for those of you that are still interested in donating to the show, visit 100 Words Podcast and on the right side you can see donate to the show. So pop on there. I'm still offering rewards, fun stuff. I can interview you for an upcoming episode, send you a bonus episode where I talk about all of the highlights and greatest hits and untold stories. So yeah, visit there. Visit propertyofzack.com, our great media partners, and uh, email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. Now we have a contributor to the show. Uh, for those of you that checked this out, I would say about a month or so ago. So there's an amazing website called the AV Club and they are, as far as I'm concerned, they are my destination for anything pop culture. Music, TV, film, they cover it all. They do it in a unique voice. Incredible. And my friend, Dave Anthony, works there. He is like the digital manager of something cool over there. So he's been a fan of the show for a long time, has supported the show. And I asked him if he would probably once a month contribute 
some records. So basically, here's some recommendations, stuff that myself and Dave have been listening to and you should check out as well. So here's a little conversation and I'll be with you in a minute. Um, well, I mean, I recommended this this split LP kind of thing called Released from Love, which is uh, a collaboration between a band called Thou and a band called The Body, who are both, you know, kind of sludgy, doomy metal bands uh, who've been around for a little while. You know, Thou kind of got a lot of hype and a lot of people are into them just because you know they're really prolific do a lot of diy touring and the records are awesome and the body uh is you know kind of similar but they also put out a record this year called i shall die here which is a collaboration with uh the hacks and cloak which is more like electronic kind of stuff and it's it's just really weird like quasi-industrial stuff but Mm. this split uh i i saw vinyl rights was putting it out and uh, like just bought it, you know, kind of on the strength of both bands' back catalogs, and and I really like a split where it's not like, oh, here's you know this band song, now this band song, like they work together on the songs, and uh, I, I just always like when bands do that. Like one of my favorite splits ever is the uh, Casket Lottery Small Round Bike split for that very reason. Yeah. I I was gonna mention the same exact thing where it's like anytime you see a split, it's like okay, that's cool because two like minded bands, but when they actually legitimately get in the same room and write stuff together and work off one another. It's like, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, for years that like small round bike casket lottery split has been like a huge reference point for me because I think it's not only is it some of the best individual songs, like wrong hometown, which is like everyone kind of working together is maybe the best song either of those bands ever wrote. And I love both those bands. And then the fucking David Bowie queen cover of under pressure is just so spot on. Like, it's so lovingly recreated. And you need two bands to do that. Like, no one band could be like, oh, we're going to fucking do Under Pressure and do it well. On tape, you can audibly hear how much fun they're having. Yeah, it's one of those moments where it's, like, just so joyous. It's just two bands who are friends doing something amazing and and really bigger than themselves, but just doing it because they love to do it. it. It didn't matter. They just went for it, and it was a success. And and that's kind of what the impetus for picking up Release from Love was for me, is that, like, all right, I like both these bands. Yeah, I was always more partial to Thou, but, you know, I like some of the body stuff. And I heard this record, and it just fucking flattened me. It was incredible. Uh, I mean, it's so heavy. That, that first song on it, The Wheel Weaves as the Wheel Wills, like, that's just, it's what I love about really heavy and aggressive music, where... It's super distorted. Everything's super huge, but it feels so expressive. Mm-hmm. And and the way the vocals play off one another, uh, you know, because the singer from the body has a much like higher pitched, like quasi black metal shriek kind of. Yeah. And the way that plays off, like, you know, like this like very doomy music, I, I think makes it really unique. And, and, and the choice to close uh, the album with that Vic Chestnut cover is fucking so bold to me because... <laughs> I, I'm a I'm a big Vic Chestnut fan, and like his the end of his life, and and really most of his story is so tragic. And it's cool to see heavy, you know, metal bands like referencing something that's so slight and quiet and restrained, and and doing it justice, and still doing it their own way. It's funny because like when you when you recommended it to check out, I'm aware of both bands. I've listened to Thou, haven't really listened to the Body. 
Thou never hit me. I was just like, yeah, they're okay. Like it was just one of those bands that kind of fell into the, you know, just, just the void for me. Yeah. And to have this affect me as deeply as it did for bands that I, I like, to be frank, I just didn't really care about. It was so that's, and I, I guess that was so, what was so exciting for me to have that ignited where it was like, dude, this is exactly why I like the heavy, dark music of, you know, Iron Monkey, I Hate God, like everything that flips my switch with those is completely entwined with this. But these are just like, you know, they're doing it, obviously, like you said, with all of those reference points of what's happening currently without sounding like this. Oh, yeah, you guys are that's cute. You're trying to imitate what happened before you, but they're like totally not at the same time. No. Yeah, exactly. And and that's kind of what draws me in about it is that, you know, they, you have these obvious reference points, the, I hate God being a really good one. And, it, it, but it still feels like they're doing something under themselves. Like I like doom and sludge and, and that kind of stuff, but it's a very tempered experience for me. Like, Unless a band really sticks out, I'm like, oh, that's cool. And then I just kind of forget about it. Like this record, you know, like grabbed me by the throat and was like, you are going to be obsessed with this for the next month. And it, yeah. that obsession's still going. I have to interject and say that the, I can't recall the last time that I just had that page open. And I mean, upon like the third or fourth listen, I was like, okay, I need to immediately buy the vinyl, which I did. But then I was like, I can't wait for it to get here. I'm just going to constantly stream these songs on SoundCloud. <laughs> well, that, that's the cool thing about it too, is vinyl rights. Um, like they're ostensibly a vinyl only label and like one, the record sounds great, but like that one stream that is just kind of floating around on SoundCloud is like the only digital version aside from probably some like shitty vinyl rips. So, like, I kind of like the idea of this being, like, you know, if that stream ever gets taken down, like, this is ostensibly, at least for a little while, like, a vinyl-only release. It's just, like, two bands who want to do something together, and, you know, five, ten years from now, like, this could be a weird collector's item, but it's yeah. one of those things where, to me, it's so important right now, and I think, you know, it's still early in the year, but is is one of my favorite heavy releases of this year and uh i'm stoked that it, it hit you in the same way because for a minute i was just like why does no one else care about this <laughs> yeah it's it, yeah it, it totally did and it just it really yeah it really hit me in ways that it, honestly like heavy music it, it has to do a lot now for me to really like become in that engaged with it and when i say heavy i mean like this extreme heavy not yeah. just like Oh yeah, like you know, whatever your typical sort of whatever hardcore metal stuff can still affect me, but this type of stuff definitely, it has to be really good, you know. And this is exactly what it was. Well, I'm glad you dig it, but it's, it's kind of funny because I guess we can kind of switch into your record now. But th there's there's a correlation I wanted to bring up, or something I've noticed with like metal bands. I feel like you know a lot of times they get not necessarily across the board, but a lot of times they get better as they age, as they, you know, get a little better at their instruments, kind of really nail down their sound, get better equipment. Like in metal, it's really common that everyone's like, oh, like that band's like third, fourth, fifth album is the best album. Whereas like punk and hardcore, it's like people love, generally speaking, like the first or second record. Like most hardcore bands don't make right. three records. And if they do, people are like, oh, it's not as good as the early shit. Right. So... I guess that kind of sets up why did you choose the Bane record then? 
Yeah, I chose I chose the Bane record, which is called "Don't Wait Up," which is you know, as anybody that pays attention to the band realizes, it's their last record. Like I said over email, like I would be remiss if I didn't talk about it because I mean, Bane for for me and I know a lot of other people is a very formative band. Like you know, when you first start to get into hardcore, it was like an easy touch point to kind of launch you into you know other bands of that same genre, just because they were usually on tour. They usually had a record that had come out within the past two years, and they were relatively prolific for a hardcore band, like you were mentioning earlier. Um, but this record just like I, I, I mean, frankly, I just haven't really cared about their musical output that much. I would be like, like when they released, you know, the last full length, the note. It was like, okay, that was cool, but it just kind of filed away into the the, the memory banks and when they played those songs live, I was like, Oh yeah, I recognize them then. And then when they released those, you know, series of seven inches, uh, which was like four EPs, which they tried to mimic a full length, but they released it on a bunch of different labels, like cool idea, but a person like I assume such as yourself, where it's like when you're able to kind of like sit down and listen to an album, like that's exciting as opposed to like, cool, here's another seven inch. Oh, Let me flip it up. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and like, it's been one of my biggest gripes with like paint it black, which is, you know, a modern hardcore band. I love, like, I think their three full lengths are incredible. And they've taken to doing, you know, seven inches instead of LPs. And, and that's fine. Like, I, I love every seven inch, but it's like, man, I want more than like 10 minutes of new painted black. It, you're like, from a rational standpoint, you understand. You're like, okay, I get it. The band is busy with their own personal lives. It's hard for them to write a full length, but then we just selfishly want that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, being a music fan is an exercise in like selfishly demanding things from someone who you have no right <laughs> to demand things from. Uh, totally, totally. But like, what was your relationship with Bane? Like, are you like really into like Give Blood and like the early records that are you know kind of considered of, of the past like fifteen twenty years like modern hardcore kind of classics or or touchstones? Totally. Like, I I mean, in the late nineties when they first started to you know put out the when they self released their seven inch and then when they got signed to Equal Vision, it's like those those records were huge for me just because it was this weird conglomeration of like okay they are by all definition of the term, like an old school hardcore band, but in the same kindred spirit as like, you know, what Turning Point did for me, where it's like, oh, like clearly your lyrical content can be a lot more than, you know, the cliched being stabbed in the back, you know, talking about how cool your varsity jacket is, like every cliche of youth crew hardcore. And so, and then, so they tempered that, you know, lyrical styling with the fact that they also had a lot of like, you know, sort of metallic influence as well, especially early on. Um, it just totally flipped my switch and I just always still to this day, anytime Bane comes through, I always have to, I, I always go see them because they still are vital live and they still, they still care. And you can tell as opposed to just like, all right, we're just going to go through the motions because that's what we have to do. And so, yeah. And that's why this record hit me so hard. Cause it was like, they didn't, they didn't need to put this out, you know, like I felt like they could have just like left and gone on a tour and did their thing and be like, that's it. But they've like all of the. Um, you know, the, the interviews that they've done around this and the sort of marketing behind the record is just it, like, it's so deliberate and thoughtful and the music just like, it, it kind of encapsulates everything that kind of made them special to me. So that's, that's why I chose the record. Cause I was like, oh, I don't feel like, I feel like people in, in the same fashion as what you were talking about earlier, people take certain bands for granted and, I think a lot of the times you have to do something quote unquote special, whether it's like breaking yeah. up or in order for people to talk about a record. And that's why I was just like, I feel like I need to say something about this because I think a lot of people are going to be like, Oh yeah, it's a really good record. And yeah, I'll see them when they come through. And then that, that will 
be all the discussion they have around it, you know? Yeah, for sure. And it's it's interesting because like I feel uh, about this as you do, but like I have a totally different experience with that band where like for me, you know, I, I came to Bain, you know, in the early 2000s after like some of those big records were out and they just they didn't hit me the way they did a lot of other people. Like I, I always respected Bane. I always felt like they were a band I should like more than I do. Where, like <laughs> I would hear the records or my friends would be into them or playing and I'm like, oh, that's cool. And, and again, it would just kind of be like, oh, that's cool. And I would just kind of leave it be. But when they announced they were breaking up and like, you know, just kind of like put out like a vid- like a video on YouTube kind of explaining why. I was like, it, it gave me this drive like, all right, I need to listen to that record and I need to go back and give them another shot because I really respected, like you were saying, how they were approaching it. It was very deliberate and it was very much, it didn't feel like a marketing ploy. Like this didn't feel like them trying to get people talking about Bane, but it was like they were a big important band for a lot of people. And I respect that they didn't just kind of peter out that like, we're going to make a record about the end of this band we're gonna make a record that is like the capstone to everything we've done throughout our career and like give you one last opportunity to experience this and i think musically like i was really taken with it like it was the most i had really been moved by one of their albums because i think there's just so much going on there's so much nuance and subtlety to the music like at moments it's so quiet and kind of distant at other moments. Like there are some of those metal influences where it gets really chuggy riffs going through and they nail it no matter what they're doing. And top to bottom, I think, I think it's an important record because it shows how you can grow up playing this kind of music. So well put. (laughs) I look at it like this. This is what adults do. Like when you are focused and deliberate about what it is you want to do, this like this is adults making a hardcore record, yeah. And like you sure. said, and like you said, it's like that. This is this is where they're at in their lives, and they're just like, okay, like here, here's what we want to accomplish. And they like in both of our estimations, they did it, and it's just so like it does feel very like it doesn't feel you know it does. A lot of people are listening to the record having emotions of you know sadness, where it's like, oh, I don't know what a world is going to be like without Bane, and it's like you know let's be honest it'll be fine but right yeah we'll be okay clearly there'll be some cool stuff that'll come after it but that notion of just like i feel like a more celebratory tone where it's just like dude this is every like we've this is it we've poured everything into it like you you got us thank you enjoy enjoy the rest of your life well and that's the the big thing about it is it feels really celebratory it's not like them down on themselves it's not this like wallowing and like oh man we're old and we can't do it it's like no, we were a great band for a long time and we can still be a great band, but life happens. And, and it's just, you know, people always talk about how hardcore is like a young person's game and, and to some degree it is. But I think this record is going to, I had to make a wild guess, just pure speculation, like five, ten years from now, it's going to kind of be a touchstone for bands that are active right now to be like, all right, this is how you can age and still be that kind of band. And this is how you can end a band when the the time's up. Like not every, you know, breakup needs to be this explosive fall apart kind of thing. You can make a deliberate choice that is going to bum people out and probably be hard on yourself, but that's what being an adult is. And like, that's why this record is about, and I think so beautifully, expresses what it's like to be an adult and still be into youth culture. And I put like, you know, fake air quotes around that, but like, (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I, I just think in the truest sense of this phrase, like, I think it's an important record. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. Like, this is, it's a total case study where it's like, I mean, not only can you look at this record, but you can look at what they've done musically and be like, that, there's no one that would look at, at Bane that cares about independent music that would be like, oh, I don't know, what they did didn't seem really successful. Yeah. There, no, like, you did it. You did it from front to back, and there was no, like, there was no real huge falters in your, you know, musical career and your musical output. Exactly. Like even, you know, me being on the other side of this, being the asshole, was like, oh, I didn't really like Bane. Like I never right, said right. they weren't a good band. Like I always acknowledged Bane was good. They just weren't. Sometimes bands don't hit you. And I'm just kind of glad that, you know, even though it's their last record and it's kind of clouded in this this moment, like. It's cool to finally feel like I truly get it, to feel like I truly can experience something that was always there, was always important, but I was kind of on the you know outskirts of. It's cool to be able to actually feel it, understand it, and like it makes sense to me why this was a band so many people cared about because right now – you know this record i still i still really like more than the other stuff after having revisited it but mm-hmm. it's cool that like to hear a record and be like all right now i need to go back to this band's catalog because i think i finally get what i was missing and then finally understood what exactly yeah. it was that you know was lacking in both directions <laughs> yeah which is which is awesome that you can have that it is because obviously it doesn't matter when you get into a band like, I mean, from the, you know, the, the notion of the, uh, you know, oh, the, the old punk rock guy of like, oh yeah, their, their demo was the best. Like it does, that doesn't matter. Yeah. Like it, whatever you get into a band, as long as you have that connection with it, who, like who cares? And it's awesome that you can come in the last record and be like, oh yeah, I checked it all out and I still like this last record. And it's like, no, like if anyone would quote unquote fault you for that, like clearly they're stupid and we should fight them. But, <laughs> well, but think, yeah, it's great. My thing is nine times out of 10. And like, I, I am occasionally this guy, but like nine times out of 10, the dude who's like, Oh, a demo is the best record is fucking lying to themselves. Like, they, you know, they're, they're, they're lying and trying to be cool. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I like seeing bands who can grow and mature and, and change and, and always be honest. And, and that's, you know, never thinking I would, you know, be like, oh man, I really like this Bane album. I, I never doubted how genuine they were. And I'm glad to see that even as what they're kind of talking about where they're at has changed. Like they've not lost that element of truth. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, I, I'm really glad that we both, <laughs> we, we both exposed each other to things that we didn't necessarily think of to listen to in the first place. It's awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's kind of the beauty of like being able to talk about music is you'll just kind of be like, Oh, have you heard X, Y, and Z? And, uh, I, I'm glad cause like, you know, you told me to listen to something that I probably wouldn't have otherwise. And I've come out of it like really being stoked on it. So I'm glad I could also do that in in the opposite way yeah no for sure well i again dave your contribution is always appreciated and uh thank you very much for doing this thank you very much for having me it's been a pleasure so there you go i know a lot of you like recommendations of stuff to listen to so there you go so here's another dave dave verillon like i said he's the singer for botch he also sings for narrows uh he's done some other stuff throughout the the years i think he played in roy a little bit but uh in any event I was so excited because uh, through a friend of a friend, I got hooked up with his email address and he immediately said yes. And so we started texting with one another, found an appropriate time for me to call him. And uh, 
it was just great because we stepped right into the friendly joking around mode. And uh, I think he was just, he was ready to talk about stuff because he, uh, I don't think he's necessarily done a lot of interviews recently uh, in regards to kind of botch and his whole musical trajectory. So we talk about a lot of awesome stuff, staying involved in music and still giving a shit uh, as well as like the unintentional beginnings of botch because they clearly uh, were a terrible band when they first began. And uh, as most bands should be, because let's be honest. I mean, if you're in a really good band when you're like 16 years old, 15, 16, um, I I don't think you have that uh, cool experience of being like, Oh, Hey, here's my first band. It was awful. I'll let Dave do the talking. I will talk to you. Well, actually longer than a minute. How about like 50 minutes? Okay. I'll talk to you after Involved with from a musical perspective, I was exposed to you through uh, Mike Fight. Gave me uh, one, obviously the seven inch that he released from you guys, and then it was one of those things where it's like I, I just didn't, I don't know, it didn't click for me right away. But then when you guys released both of those seven inches on a CD, and then obviously that uh, the O Fortuna cover that everyone hit you guys up for for years and years and years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that that, uh, that I don't know why, but it all kind of like congealed and made sense like uh i I don't know it was weird as this like each seven inch was good but then when you put both of them together it just i don't know it made more sense even though they you know i don't know i don't know if you guys feel felt like that at all um and that's why you obviously package it up or that was just out of necessity no i think we we wanted to package them together because we felt that that was more cohesive of like a kind of time frame for the band you know and for us as people so we were trying to figure out what it was exactly we were trying to do. You know, I mean, our goal was to just put out a record because back then, like putting out a record was a huge deal. It was pretty difficult. Um, you know, it, it took a record label to do that. It took like, um, I guess acceptance from somebody out there to like have a record out. And so we were pretty, um, we were pretty excited to try and accomplish that. And then when we kind of did the two seven inches, um, some time and some time and some growth, of course, had happened, and and I think they're very different, especially sounding and stuff like that. But yeah. then uh, together, I, I think you're right. I think they kind of belong together. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was it was it's weird because I don't think I can't think of very many other bands, especially from that era, that it was like the uh, you know putting putting a collection of early stuff together made you know it kind of made cohesive sense because obviously it's like you know when you're 16 17 years old like you're not thinking you don't think of cohesion you don't care that both seven inches sound the same or whatever no but yeah so no it's funny because i I keep running into the to the realization that we probably um accomplished all this stuff subconsciously that we didn't realize we were doing and and so now when it's under scrutiny so much, you know what I mean, from other people is when it kind of brings it to light, you know what I mean? So yeah. whereas we were just trying to like practice and have fun and write songs that we thought were interesting and challenging or whatever, or moshy, you know what I mean? This doesn't matter, but we right. just try to do whatever we were, we were capable of. And, and then all of a sudden uh, we look back on it and we're like, oh man, that totally fits weird. You know what I mean? 
Right, right. It's like, oh, hey, this was completely unintentional, but awesome that it worked out that way. It made us, it made us look really smart when we weren't really trying to do that. It makes you wonder how often that's actually been the case with smart people. Oh, oh, <laughs> you know? There's a term for it. I think I've heard it. it's like accidental genius, you know, where it's like you just uh, uh-huh. you just trip across something. And then obviously, as the narrative changes, as you get older, where it's just like, you know, because you could you could have totally just owned that question or like, oh, yeah, you know, when we put out the two seven inches, like they totally they made sense together. And of course, that's why we did that. Like, <laughs> right, right. You, just, you just own that narrative. But yeah, that's not, uh, you know, you're honest and that's good. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think I think uh, you know the, the honesty of it all is just it's kind of prevalent in our in our band. You know what I mean? We kind of were just um, doing what we felt was uh, what, you know appropriate and pertinent and what we wanted to do. And and so all of a sudden, when people were were digging it, we were kind of like, okay, well, like we didn't do anything really different in our minds. You know what I mean? It probably sounded much different to like a record buyer, but in our minds, we were just, you know, these are the songs that were coming out of us. So, um, having that kind of like real honest music coming out of us, I think, you know, had an impact on, on the way it was received. Yeah, no, it's, I, I totally understand. And this was actually a point I was going to hit a little bit later on, but I think it's a perfect time to bring up where something, something that I personally noticed within the, um, you know, I, I, I was, spent most of my time going to shows in Southern California. And so, uh, you know, being not too far removed from what was happening in Seattle, just the stuff that I was witnessing in regards to that point you were making where it was like, you know, you guys, you know, you guys putting this stuff together was obviously, you know, it was all based around fun. Like clearly there was no business plan because bands of that nature didn't make a living. Like that wasn't, there was, that wasn't even an option. Right. Um, right. But it, it was, we, it's weird. I mean, and I think it's something that, you know, you guys did very well where it was like, you took the music that you did seriously, but you didn't take what you were doing seriously, if that makes sense. Where like the presentation of like, cause you guys, you know, generally speaking, like in between songs and just like, obviously you as people are, you know, goofy. Yeah. Anytime you guys played, you know, like when I would see you, it would be this like kind of, uh, you know, very serious, heavy, like obviously surreal experience when the band is playing, and then in between songs and off stage, you guys are just kind of like, "Hey!" And <laughs> I don't know if that, <laughs> I, I don't know if that, uh, if that, ru- if you ever found that rubbing people the wrong way, or they were just like, "Oh, I thought you were going to be super serious and like mathy." <laughs> yeah, I think it would screw people up because you know, uh, around that same time or whatever, maybe they saw like I don't know, uh, I want to say Coalesce or a band like that where you know those guys were like fuck you we're not going to talk to you or whatever because we're so moody and this is so serious or 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 you know neurosis maybe even where it's a band where you feel like they're unapproachable and they're like some kind of super being you know that's like putting yeah. out this this kind of like uh experience you know what i mean and it, <laughs> i think for us like since especially since we never really talked about it we were just like okay let's play a show and like you know, we were, we grew up on bands like uh, like the Olympia scene and like uh, the Seattle scene, where bands like Unwound and stuff like that would just get up, be who they were, and play play songs and react how they would just typically normally. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and so we kind of we kind of were closer to that, I think, than kind of like a theatrical, all encompassing product. Like, you know, from point A to point Z, we are we are this moody creature that is going to create this this experience for you i think we were just more like hey here are the songs that we wrote in our basement like like maybe <laughs> if you want to you should dance to them or whatever you want to do you know and right right i think that um that was awesome for us i, I look back on that as such fondness because uh 
I, I get excited that we were just true to ourselves and, and like kind of just let it happen versus like, okay guys, let's sit down and talk about this. Now who's going to wear the red, you know, shirt and I'm going to wear, I'm going to wear a black shirt tonight. So don't, you know what I mean? Or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And like all the way to the point of, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Sorry. It's calculated where it's like, yeah, you obviously there, you know, you guys had a plan for the band, but it was, there was not, there was not that deliberateness that was obviously um, so prevalent, especially in heavy music where it was like, you did feel like you had to have some sort of agenda where it's like, yeah, you guys were, you, like I said, like I said, there was a plan, but not so structured to where it's like, oh, no deviation from that. <laughs> right, right. And then, you know, you'd play shows with some bands and they'd be like, you know, on stage telling to everybody, all right, everybody, like, you know, this song's about this. You know, they come off as like, oh man, like these guys are so so intelligent and so like deep thinkers and then after the show you'd hang out with them and be like oh man like that was kind of sticky you know what i mean it wasn't like a real a real presentation of them as people necessarily or, or maybe it was and they just turned it on and turned it off i don't really know but yeah, yeah. i just don't think we were that kind of we weren't that kind of band where we um we wouldn't take on like a um I don't know what you want to call it. Yeah, a persona. But, like, yeah, yeah, a character. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You yourself, were you uh, born and raised up in the uh, Pacific Northwest, or where, where did you, you and your brother and your family come up? Yeah, yeah, man. We were um, we were born in, uh, well, let's see. I was born in Lakewood, uh, which is like south of Tacoma. Okay. And uh, that's where we, and, and my brother and sister were too, but like different hospitals and stuff. But yeah, we grew up down there, and um, it's kind of like uh, at the time, especially it was kind of like an affluent um suburb of Tacoma and I guess it still is you know it's kind of gone downhill a little bit lately but you know our parents are together and had jobs and stuff like that so we kind of just did our thing you know in, in that in that neighborhood and then um uh let's see right when I was getting out of high school so like 96 or something like that mm-hmm. uh my dad got a job in Seattle and my whole family moved up to Seattle so um Everybody moved up there, and I actually stayed in Tacoma and was going to like community college and stuff. So. Okay, but for for all yeah for all intent and purposes, your formative years, as it were, were in the uh, Tacoma area. Which, for anybody that hasn't traveled up in the Pacific Northwest, it's like the uh, my first experience. Like I played Hell's Kitchen in Tacoma before, and it was like mm-hmm. it was so weird because you you have a picture of Seattle and like that's w- what it is, and then you go to Tacoma, which is like totally like working class like it it felt it just felt so different and it's only an hour away you know or even less than that yeah no it totally is different i'm sure i'm sure that's something that you like completely you know is ingrained in your in your dna (laughs) yeah i I guess so i mean it it definitely had an effect on i think us coming up as a band you know it's crazy too because like i'll be around tacoma these days and i'll run into people that are like oh my gosh man it's like cool to see you guys like i saw you play or whatever and you know you guys are awesome and it's totally like easy to talk to them. Whereas in Seattle, you know, somebody will look at you and then they won't say anything. And then when they leave, somebody else will be like, that person was totally freaking out that you're sitting right there. And you're like, what? Like, why the fuck didn't they <laughs> right. say anything? You know, it's just so weird. Kind of like passive aggressive and kind of, it's just a different, a different scene. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And honestly, I would say in the last 10 years or 15 years since I've been in a band in Seattle, I've done a lot of stuff. I think Seattle's changed. I think it's a lot more um, what it needs to be now. There's like an awesome kind of underground scene again. And like, there's a lot of, um, a lot of active people in the music scene. Whereas for a while, I think it kind of, kind of lulled out you know yeah 
but but Tacoma Tacoma's great. I mean, it's the kind of place where you know you could be you know poor or you could have trust fund money, and it didn't really matter because you're just sitting on the same you know bar stool next to somebody, and yeah. it didn't matter. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. What did your uh, What did your parents do for a living as they were uh, as they were raising you guys? Uh, my dad is a lawyer, uh, and my mom is a special ed teacher. Oh, okay. So, uh, but she didn't really go back to work until, until I'd say we were all in junior high or high school, something like that. So she was an at-home mom for our, you know, young days. And then my dad worked at a law firm in Tacoma and, um... What what sort of law did he practice? No, I think it was just civil, civil, civil case stuff. Like, he, you know, he didn't really share a lot of that. I got more involved with his career when he started, he became a court commissioner, which is like a, um, like a mini judge, I guess is the best way to put it. Sure for the state state court of appeals. And, uh, and that was more interesting to me because he was, you know, he had a robe and he'd sit on a bench and he'd hear cases and he had a calendar of all this different stuff where he had to like make decisions. On, and he was hearing all these appellate cases, like people that were like trying to, you know, like redo basically what, what had come of their, their situation. Right. And, uh, that was, that was pretty interesting stuff, you know, listening to him talk about that stuff. And so as you, uh, you know, what, what sort of kid did you find yourself being, uh, in the, uh, in the Tacoma area? Were you, uh, you know, kind of a, a troublemaker? Did you, uh, kind of stick by the rules or how, how do you look back on that time? You know, I mean, I, I look at, I think it was awesome. I kind of got away with a lot of stuff. Um, I was, I was just bad enough to like, feel like I was free, you know what I mean? But I wasn't so bad that I that I didn't need jail time or anything like that. I just, <laughs> I think I spent one day in a holding cell and that's about it. I was about to say, what, what, uh, what, what precipitated the uh, one day in the holding cell? What did you do for that? So I had some older friends, of course, like you do. And, um, uh, we were skipping school and I think we were driving around and, uh, we'd gotten lunch or something like that. And, uh, we we're driving and this car cut us off, um, and one of the dudes in the front seat had like a little tiny, like orange and yellow, uh, cap gun. And he pointed out the window. Well, there was a cop behind us and he saw the shape of a gun, I guess, silhouette kind of a deal, pulled us over, did a full like felony stop, like dragged us out of the cars. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. it was way, way overkill, but then that's the life and times. Right. So Right. Um, it's so funny because like, I think every kid runs across an experience like that where it's like, you're like, dude, I know it's a cap gun. Like, we're fine, right? But then you realize yeah. that, but then once you actually like had to step back and look at the situation, you were just like, oh, yeah, I could see where someone would look at that and be like, oh, that, that may be a real gun. Like, <laughs> that, that's some serious yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. Especially now, too. It just seems, you know, it seems so crazy to me then, but like to now I'm like, Oh yeah, I could see why, <laughs> why that would happen. And you know, they let us just sit in this, in this cell with like some serious criminals for a little, for like half a day, you know what I mean? And yeah. let us kind of sweat it out for a while. <laughs> did you, did you have to make the uh, dreaded call to your parents to pick you up? Dude, no, that was the crazy part. And they just kicked us out of the front door really. So then we're like, <laughs> Mile and like they let us out like an hour apart from each other, so like you're on your own. You had to find- <laughs> so I think what I did was uh walk to the library and called my mom and said, Hey, I'm at the library if you want to come pick me up. And yeah, <laughs> that's it. Wow, that's incredible. They're just like, All right, lesson learned. <laughs> 
Yeah, dude. Yeah, I thought shit in my pants when, uh, especially like I was one of the last ones to come out of the car, you know, and that you put your arms, arms up, you know, walk backwards to my voice, you know, like, just <laughs> yeah. like a movie. And I'm walking backwards halfway, and then all of a sudden they're like, stop, 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 open your hand, drop what you got. And I'm like, what the fuck? I don't have anything. Oh my God. Like, I opened my hands up, and I don't know if they saw a shadow or something, but. Right. I fuck. I thought oh, a bullet's gonna hit me in the back right now. I'm gonna get shot for for doing nothing. You know what I mean? I was super scared. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dude, for sure. You're like this got way more serious than I ever anticipated. You're you're pushing the limit, but not so much as to uh, yeah get your get your parents too uh, worked up. Your brother's younger than you, and where does he? Are you the middle child or are you the oldest? I'm the oldest, and then Ben's the middle child, and we have a sister who's the youngest. Yeah. So yeah, as you, as you started to, uh, you know, go through high school and stuff like that, um, you know, were you, uh, into sports? Like how did, uh, how did all that stuff start to, uh, you know, come in your head and obviously independent music, when did that start to, you know, take its hold? Yeah, I had, I had like, uh, one best friend and, uh, growing up in like elementary school, lived down the street and basically him and I got into, uh, sports and like we were skiers, like big into skiing, you know, like, um. I played soccer up until high school, and then, like, uh, but we did, like, ski bus, which I don't know if you know what that is, but that's, like, no. you go to the school on the weekends, and the bus, there's, like, a bus, and then you go to the school on the weekends, and it drives you, drives you up to the mountain, and you go ski all day. Oh, wow. And so, like, yeah, so I did that for years, and, like, so I was big into, like, skiing and eventually snowboarding and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, but then as soon as I got into music, I kind of ditched sports, completely you know what i mean like yeah. i felt myself less I, identifying less with with the sports dudes and more with the the rock dudes and so there's like a transition right there you know right right when did, did did you have like when you were skiing and stuff like that was there hopes to like compete and kind of do that as a thing or was that that just like more of a hobby than anything else oh yeah no it was like uh it was back when like extreme skiing was starting to like break in and like dudes like glenn plake the guy with the big mohawk would ski you know you ever see that guy yeah yeah yeah. he's a big like like standing mohawk and he's going like 90 miles an hour down the mountain so we're like that guy's awesome you know (laughs) and we'd watch all the warren miller flicks and a bunch of other stuff and you just, you just basically. So we were big into that. You yeah. wanted, you wanted to be extreme. I get it. Extreme, yeah, dude. We. <laughs> it's funny, man. I remember, I'm, I remember a time writing the word extreme like on my binder, just being like, "Yeah, it's extreme," you know. I'm like, now it seems so hokey, but <laughs> yeah, but dude, you, that, that's like a that's a mantra at that time. You were writing it on your on your binder to advertise, like, dude, I'm edgy. Get yeah. lay off. You, you never know. You never know what what hot babe might be looking over your shoulder at your uh, peachy, right? Right? It's yeah. peachy. You're like that dude's extreme. Yeah. You're like I, I gotta I gotta ask him out for a date. Obviously, that's that's incredible. Yeah, so, so. so then, so but how did uh, how did the introduction of independent music come into play? Was it was it like like you said? Obviously, you made a transition from kind of you know being sport a sports dude into music how did that kind of you know matriculate through your life i think two ways like one is like my older friends that i was that i got arrested with those mm-hmm. dudes they were they were snowboarders and stuff like that and we started listening to like they had like some minor threat and stuff like that that they were listening to and i was like what is it you know like getting into it a little bit yeah and there was like local shows around like local punk shows in uh in tacoma and uh, puyallup which is a town east of Tacoma mm-hmm. and uh we'd go to these shows and not I wouldn't really understand it but like I was I was there and I was digging it and then um 
there's other kids in my high school that were were hardcore kids, and they were like, "Oh, dude, we listen to like Gorilla Biscuits and and uh, you know bands like that." And freaking, uh, there's a for some reason that's running away from oh, uh, Brotherhood from Seattle was huge then. Oh yeah, and they're like, "Dude, we we love Brotherhood," and they were just you know uh, all about that. And so I was kind of getting into that because I was like, "Oh, these these dudes are cool. They're not jocks. They're not. Uh, they're kind of assholes." Like. Right. You hit on such an important point that I think there's something that's inherently appealing to the idea that it's like, yeah, you look at those guys and they were obviously like, they look like they knew what they were doing. Like, and that I think that that's where that sort of assholeness comes into play where it's like, oh yeah, like I'm into this cool shit. Like, where are you? (laughs) Yeah, dude. So it was crazy because I saw like a real microcosm of like the hardcore world, like occurring, occurring in Tacoma, Washington, where there was like, you know, this one dude would show up and he's in his Krishna robes and we're like, dude, what's that dude? And he's like, he's a Krishna now. He's, you know, he loves this, this, and this because of this, this, and this. And we're like, whoa. And like, what are these dudes? And they're straight edge dudes. And we're like, oh, what's straight edge? You know, right. just fell into it, you know, and all of a sudden we're going to every undertow show, which was every weekend just about. Mm-hmm. And we'd be driving out to Seattle or driving out to you know, Bellevue and places to go see these bands and sitting in, you know, and we thought, dude, this is so awesome. Like nobody knows about this. Our parents don't really know exactly what it is we're doing. We're like sitting in a, in a city alley waiting for the door of the venue to open up. You know what I mean? With a bunch of like people we don't even know, but who treat us cool. And you know what I mean? It was just, yeah, it's a secret. It was intoxicating. It, right. It's, it, it's that whole, it's that whole sort of secret society thing where you're just like, like, I can't believe that everybody isn't into this. Yeah, man. Yeah. And then, so we'd, you know, we'd be driving up from Tacoma. We'd go to uh, this record store in Seattle called Fallout Records. And that was where you could get, you know, a lot of hardcore albums, you know, from, you know, whatever, like tons of labels with some of their stuff there. Anyway, mm-hmm. so we'd buy records. Then we'd go to the show. And then, you know, then we'd go to band practice or whatever. So that was, that was like our life for the formative years of Bosch. Like, it was just. That's what we did, like go to shows, practice, and uh, buy records. <laughs> so was it, uh, was was Botch, by all intent and purposes, your first band? Yeah, totally. Dude, mm-hmm. that's, it was, uh, that's, not, that's not very fair. I mean, because, you, you know, t- t- <laughs> typically speaking, you got to have at least one or two other terrible bands under your belt before you really start something. Uh, you know, that obviously, I mean, obviously that lasted for a long time. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I think you got to go back. You have to start playing in some bad bands now. Uh, well, I'm trying, I'm trying yeah. to start a bad band, so <laughs> exactly. I'm going to make up for it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think there are some incarnations of botch that were probably could be considered pretty bad, like our first year or so. And oh, yeah. I don't know, we, we did like a demo tape that was like, really? Like what, like we were some crazy cross between like helmet and jello biafra you know what i mean like we made no sense we made zero sense we were writing these weird topics and like mm-hmm. but i think those are the years that we gelled together and grew together as musicians and learned to play our instruments and learned to like and we were friends so it was just our that's what we did we hung out together and and jammed and stuff like that and uh we always had the next thing like okay we're gonna we're gonna write a song and then we're gonna play a show and we're gonna we're gonna try and play this show and we're gonna try and you know put out a record and we're going to try, you know, we just have the next thing, next thing, next thing, next thing. And 
Right. So it was it was awesome. It was productive. You know what I mean. <clears throat> Did you always have the conception that you wanted to, for one, sing in in a band, and for two, like once you started to go to shows, like was it immediate that you wanted to play in a band as well? I don't. Yeah, I always. I think I always wanted to play in a band. I remember like I asked my parents for a guitar and guitar lessons when I was maybe thirteen or something like that. And so I got that, and I was I was trying to do that, and I was going to these guitar lessons with the guys like. Hey, you want to check out the newest Red Hot Chili Pepper Jam? And I was just like, "Fuck no, this guy sucks," you know. And but uh, we we'd be working on this stuff, and and then um, when I met those dudes, you know, Dave, Brian, and Tim, mm-hmm. they were like, "Yeah, we have a band, man." And I was like, "What? You guys have a band? That's so awesome!" You know. And right, the, they were like, "Yeah, you know, maybe we'll let you in our band," you know, type of deal. It was so funny. And then uh, I remember getting a phone call in the kitchen of my house because you know you had a house phone back then, just one phone. And they were like, yeah, dude, so we're going to practice, you know, tomorrow. You guys, you should come over. And I just hung up the phone and was like, I'm in a band. I'm in a band. And I ran, like, just so stoked. Like, I I had no idea what I was doing, but I was just like, I'm in a band. These guys want me in their band. I'm so stoked. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know? Right. Like, I, I, I'm, ta- I'm talented. I obviously will be able to deliver. <laughs> they Actually, they wanted me because I had a guitar. And they were like, dude, you got a guitar. Perfect. Well, I showed up, and they were like, Ah, you're terrible at guitar, man. I don't think we should. I don't think you should touch the guitar anymore. So <laughs> that's amazing. That didn't last very long. I think that's such an important part of of the formation of bands. Is like so many people end up doing what they do in a band just because, just either by default, by like you said, by them owning an instrument, or usually the vo- the vocalist for the most part isn't because they're good. It's just because well, like oh, like he's loud, maybe. Like oh, I think he can. He, that guy could probably pull it off. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, man. It's totally true. I, I had a few conversations with John Pettibone from Undertow and Himsa, you know, and yep. and we would talk about how you know he was originally the bass player in Undertow, and then uh, their singer quit or something like that, and they're like, "Well, who's going to sing?" You know, and he's like, "I guess I'll do it," you know, or whatever. So <laughs> yeah, it totally well, is like that where you just kind of fall into that role. Right. Right. And so, uh, so as, as you, as you started to, yeah, go to shows and, you know, uh, start, start the early years of botch and stuff like that. How did your, uh, I, cause I presume your, your brother was obviously starting to see what you were getting into and, uh, you know, how did your parents start to react to that stuff as they were like, Oh, great. Not, not one of my sons, but both of my sons are getting into some weird looking stuff. Yeah. You know, I never really got a weird, like a, a negative impression at all from my parents. I think that's, that's good. Like probably the. The one is, yeah, I'm so lucky in that regard. In fact, like, uh, my dad was like, Oh, great. Like, you know, um, you know, to drive us to these shows or would drive, you know, do all this kind of supportive role stuff for us. It was really awesome. Um, in fact, like I think Botch's first ever tour was we played three shows in Canada. We played Vancouver, Victoria, and then this other small town outside of Victoria. And uh, my dad drove us to, for the whole tour for like three nights. Dude, he that's drove amazing. Us. Yeah, it's crazy. And like he had his van and he would drive us to the show and he would just sit in the van, you know, and he'd let us unload. And then he'd be like, all right, I'm going to go back to the hotel or whatever. I'll pick you guys up at one in the morning or something like that. And so he would drop us off at like this house overrun with like punk kids, you know, and he would just let us do our thing. And I, I feel so lucky to have had uh, parents like that that really like just let us like kind of 
find our way, you know? Yeah, no, that's, that's such an incredible story of, of, of hearing not only like, you know, dropping you off at shows, but clearly like taking the next step and being like, Hey, I'm involved in this. Like, and having, having my presence here is, is helpful. So, I mean, I, I'm sure they saw it as like, you know, Hey, well, at least we can keep an eye on them a little bit sure. and make sure, you know, they're safe and stuff like that. But also for us, it was just like a huge boost in like, in confidence and support. And so like, you know, whether it was like our parents, like helping us buy equipment or taking us places, like that's the kind of stuff that, you know, I, I don't, you see like a lot of these, like, you know, um, you know, I want to say urban bands, you know, and they're like, you know, I grew up, I came up on the streets or whatever. And like, nothing was handed to me, but like so much, so much creativity and music comes from the, the burbs, like where I did, where that's like where it's, cultivated you know what i mean that's like where one of the places where it's you have situations like that where it's totally supported and everybody you know your parents want you to do something with yourself and creative or whatever yeah it, you know uh, and i'm sure you had this experience as well when you tour it, it, it's not so much the the big cities that you have great shows you know from like la to new york to chicago or whatever like you know shows will be cool there but then it's like when you kind of you know step off the beaten path and you play you know like suburbs of these big cities some of those shows are just like dude, there's 200 kids here freaking the fuck out. And like, why? This is great because it's the birds. Yeah, yeah, or college town or something like that, you know, where all these students are and they like, they're interested in what what's going on. And I, I always like, I always felt like a weird, you know, there's kind of like a weird like shame associated at the time. Like, yes, it was. So my parents are dropping me off at the show. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I'll be driving soon or, or whatever, you know what I mean? But now looking back, I'm like, man, there's nothing to be ashamed about. That's like... It's amazing. That's like where a ton of these bands come from. I, I would I would argue that the majority of them. I mean, who who at fifteen has enough money or wherewithal to get a instrument? It's very very limited. You know, very few. So <laughs> totally no. That's, that's I don't know. That's rad. That's rad. I definitely attribute this to my own personal naivete. But you guys definitely <laughs> you guys definitely were one of the uh, you know earlier bands that I noticed that uh, you know like wasn't straight edge. Where it was like, because that was obviously such a thing in the 90s where it's like, oh, you're playing hardcore, you know, at least three out of the five members are probably straight edge or there's some affiliation with that. But then I just remember seeing you guys play and it was like, oh, like clearly that's not on, on their agenda. And that was fine. But it was just that 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 veneer of kind of like, oh, yeah, like, quote unquote, normal people can play this sort of, this, this style of music, too, even though by definition, you're not normal because you're playing this weird music. But uh, so did, did people have that common interaction with you guys where it was like, oh, so how many of you are vegan straight edge? Yeah, well, it's kind of weird because uh, me and uh, me and Tim, the drummer, we we definitely at, at uh, early stages, we said we were straight edge. You know what I mean? Like we right. X'd up and we listened to, you know, all the straight edge bands and and we totally adopted that culture, but it didn't last long. And I think it's mostly because, honest to be honest, we didn't we didn't fit in with those dudes, uh, like with the straight edge scene that much. Um, and I don't know why necessarily, but like in Seattle or, or the Northwest, it was kind of like a kind of macho scene, you know, with like a bunch of really good looking dudes who were like six skateboarders and, you know, had a trail of girls following them. And, you know, those, that's the straightest dudes were. Right. And so like, we it didn't take long for us to realize, okay, we don't, <laughs> this isn't really who we are. This isn't really working for us. I mean, I don't drink, but I'm not going to wear white feeders and I'm not going to like, you know, only shop at champion stores and stuff like that. You know? So, uh, right. it didn't last long, but I mean, 
we run into that a lot and we play a lot of those bands and we'd run like play those venues or like a straight edge house, you know, a bunch of straight edge kids were living and stuff like that. And what made it kind of easier is that we weren't like, you know, lighting up a cigarette in their face or anything like that. And, um, <laughs> right, right. you know, you know what I mean? Like we were just kind of, we we're just neutral. We we're just pretty neutral dudes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, there, there was a respect across the board from, you know, all, all of those, uh, elements coming into play. Um, and the uh, you know the, the the other thing that obviously I, I know a lot of people spoke about when you guys started to incorporate uh, you know li- like a light show and you know th- that pervaded throughout the you know the rest of the band's uh, career was it was it one of those things like when you guys because I mean to be honest like there wasn't very many bands that were doing uh, a version of that usually because it was it's expensive i mean and it's a pain in the ass because stuff breaks all the time um but w- obviously for you guys it was an important part of just kind of you know creating an atmosphere i presume absolutely um i'm sure we stole it i'm pretty positive <laughs> I, I wish i had a better right. i wish i had a better memory uh i'm telling you if i can talk brian cook into finally publishing his tour journals uh, we'll probably find out where we stole it from, but <laughs> right, until right. then, I don't, I can't remember. But uh, it, it was definitely that kind of thing where we're like, um, you know, I, I remember I was, uh, I was kind of experimenting with singing through like this weird combo amp that we had that had a reverb tank on it, and so I was like messing with a bunch of like, like vocal, you know, sounds and stuff like that, and mm-hmm. having sound guys mic it or run a di on it and just be irritated as fuck at me and then i think it slowly morphed into okay these cheap work lamps from you know from ace hardware let's plug them in while we play and that way the light is on the crowd instead of on us you know what i mean and they're like oh yeah fuck yeah cool you know and it just totally grew you know what i mean just just like everything else we did it just developed into what it was yeah i love it though man it's one of my one of my I was really stoked about the lights and stuff like that. Yeah, no, it was it was always cool because I mean I, the last time I saw you guys play, I think it was uh you know when you came through with uh, Rocket from the Crypt and uh, Murder City Devils, I think, and you played at like the El Rey Theater, uh, and it was one of those things where it was like it was even cool that you know watching you guys in front of you know three hundred people at the Shea Cafe was great, and the lights provided an environment. But then obviously when you guys were doing larger tours, you still were able to kind of like blow it out and still create that atmosphere, which I, you know, that was, that's, that's hard to do obviously, but it, you know, it, it provided that general, like that, uh, that, that through line throughout the band where it's like, Oh no, we, you know, we're, we're trying to control this. Totally. It was, it was so funny because every time we would set up on a stage like that, like El Rey or like a bigger, like great American in San Francisco or places like that, we'd have these like pro stage dudes looking at our shit like what the fuck <laughs> you know i'd be running an extension cord across the stage and <laughs> plugging in power strips that's what our switch system was was a bunch of power strips you know right right it's <laughs> it, 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 it so it just, just like yeah what? like what are you what are you doing like this is a fire hazard times <laughs> 10 what are you <laughs> it's amazing yeah i was like what 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 plug has a separate circuit than the music and they're like what and i'm like yeah because we blow a lot of fuses with like this this you know, there's like 500 watt halogen bulbs or whatever strewn across the stage and whatever else we had strobes and shit like that. And <laughs> that's incredible. But the cool, the best thing about it was, you know, then we'd go to Europe or we'd go to Hawaii or places like that. And you could just go to the hardware store, 
you get all the components for our light show. You know what I mean? And just if something broke, it costs like twenty bucks to fix instead of like two thousand bucks. Right, right, yeah, which is which is incredible. And so, so obviously, as the band started to uh, you know come to a close, and you guys obviously uh, you know you went out on a proverbial high where people were still wanting more music from you guys. But you know, for you yourself, like once you started to confront the idea that it was like. Oh, wow. Like, here's, you know, not like you were ever, or I'm just presuming, but did it ever come to a point where obviously you guys, like, you were making all of your money off of the band and you didn't need to hold jobs and stuff like that? No, we never, we never reached that point. Um, That's what I thought. (laughs) Yeah, no, we were always like coming home from tour broke and like pissed off. (laughs) <laughs> and going back to work at the auto warehouse, auto parts warehouse, or, you know, wherever. Right, right. So, yeah, it's like you said earlier in this conversation, like, bands back then just weren't making money off of doing music, and I don't really think anybody's ever, I mean, besides, like, you know, the megastars, I don't think anybody really makes a ton of money off of doing music. It's more more labor love than anything else. And, right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, I because I, I, I always look at the, you're never making money, but they're, they're comes a time where it's like obviously a band becomes self-sustaining to where it's like yeah you can take those two months in between tours off to where you're not having to work a crappy job or whatever but yeah obviously that you know you guys never got there but so i'm sure when the when the band started to come to an end was it uh was it kind of a a terrifying screeching halt for you to be like whoa what do i where do i go now where do i pivot like what do i do <laughs> was there was there a lot of that absolutely yeah, for me especially because I didn't have um I didn't have another project, you know what I mean? Like uh Dave was uh and minus the bear and stuff was totally ramping up. And I think Brian is, was such a talented dude, it was just a matter of time until he was doing something with somebody. But I think for myself and I know for Tim, like we were just kinda like, Well, that was fun while it lasted, like that was that was our music career, you know what I mean? And um I, that's when I started like, okay, I need to like figure out what I'm going to do to make money for, for the rest of my life and, right. and face the music kind of a moment, you know? Was it difficult for you to make that transition, not only like mentally, but, you know, kind of figuring out what you wanted to do? I had, I had a pretty good idea actually, like towards the, towards the end of Botch, I was working on uh, becoming a fireman. And so that's, that's what I just decided I was going to pursue full time, you know? And yeah. So that's what I did. And then, uh, but it was bittersweet, like emotionally and mentally, it sucked. I, you know how, you've been on tour before, so you know how after you home from tour, you have this like week of just depression, like, <laughs> yeah. Cause you're, you're at home and you're seeing the same, you know, scenery for the, for 24 hours or more. Right. Well, it's the, it's always, it's the adjustment period. It was always one of those things where it was like, it definitely, you know, usually a significant other is able to notice it where like they know that they need to kind of, you know, leave you alone for, you know, whatever, the three to four days after you're home because, you mm-hmm. know, oh, you don't wash the dishes. You're just like, well, it's because you didn't have dishes for like two months. Like, these are just, yeah. there's are weird <laughs> things, but yeah, that, that sort of traditional period. Yeah, so I think I had one of those that lasted about two years. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. It's a, Where did, I, you know, it was, I missed it. I missed music and uh, I missed at least having like kind of like that, that, that other side of my life to like look at and like look forward to and stuff like that. So it was a bummer. Yeah. How did you find yourself kind of, you know, uh, making that, uh, transition in your head to where it was like, okay, 
I need to let go of that idea. And I am obviously focusing on, you know, becoming a fireman and like that is, uh, you know, that's, that's now my, my focal point as opposed to, you know, trying to put another band together or something like that. Uh, I just, yeah, I think it was just that. I think it was just having that as a focal point. Like, I think I just decided, okay, well, now that that's done, I'm not going to like, uh, you know, I don't want to spend like a thousand hours in like a dirty practice space, um, again, necessarily, right. um, at that point in time. So I was like, I'll just, I'm going to focus on this and I'm going to try, I can to like, you know, I spent all my time on that. I, I did a bunch of work and testing and whatever else. So, you know, it kind of just took away the emptiness of not having a band, but really that never fully went away. Right. Right. Well, yeah, it's like once you, and I think, I think a lot of it has to do with just the, the general concept of kind of creating something out of nothing. Like that's, you know, that's a very, once you've done it a few times, it's like, oh, wow, that is such a gratifying feeling that it's difficult to, you know, duplicate in other facets of, you know, quote unquote, uncreative life. Absolutely, man. And like, uh, like that, that's why, uh, you know, like Rob Moran, man, he's, he's kind of like the guy that saves me, dude. He's a, he's the resurrector because yeah, yeah. Uh, I was, I was doing nothing and, uh, he moved up to Seattle and totally was like, dude, let's, let's jam sometime. And I hadn't even thought about doing it you know, ever really. I'd done Roy, which was more like, uh, like fun hangout with Brian and my brother, right. uh, for, for a good time and excuse to hang out and stuff like that. Right. Um, which now I look back on and I fucking love all those songs. Every single song Roy ever did. I fucking love. So Dude, awesome, yeah. Roy, Roy was one of those things too, where it was like, you guys were definitely a few, a few years ahead of the curve, so to speak, or it was like, you know, it was, it was right before, you know, the, the idea of like, you know, like Lucero and a lot of obviously like the sort of, you know, alt country stuff that was happening within the punk scene. And it was like, yeah, you guys are just, uh, you know, a few years ahead of that, which obviously, uh, you're just, you're just good at being ahead of the curve, I guess. Dude, I don't know if that's good, man. Have you ever gone surfing? If you're ahead of the wave all the time, you never fucking get to catch a wave. It sucks. <laughs> totally. But you're, you're able to look at the wave and be like, Hey, that was cool. Like that, uh, that, that got built off of me. <laughs> That's right. Almost, almost, man. Next time, next time I'll get it. Next time. So when did you, cause you have a family now, you have a, uh, a child and, uh, you're married currently. Yep. Yep. I got a kid, daughter and wife and a rabbit and a house. <laughs> when, when did, when did that all start to, uh, was that towards the, the tail end of botch when that stuff started to come into play or is that well after? Uh, well it's after I, I, I got married, uh, I got married after, let's see, after Botch, uh, right when Narrows was beginning. Okay. And then that marriage fell, fell apart. Okay. Uh, and so then I got uh, remarried uh, four years ago. Actually, I didn't get married four years ago, but I, anyway, I found my wife four years ago. Sure. Then I got married, then had a baby. And uh, so this is like the second second go around of, of the whole marriage game. But Sure. Second time's a charm. Yeah, dude. <laughs> The first one's a practice. You got to get out of practice. Right. The, the, uh, yeah. The training wheels. Um, exactly. And so the, uh, so yeah, obviously it's one of those things now it's like you, you know, the, that clearly takes the, uh, you know, the priority in every aspect of your life. Um, and obviously, you know, you, you're, you're creative in the times in which you can obviously find the time to do it. Um, is it, uh, is it one of those things too, that <laughs> where, you know, when you go out and obviously play shows with narrows and stuff like that, and you know, do participate in that that creative process, um, is it more? 
is it more difficult to play for kind of unresponsive audiences, the kind of people that are just like looking at you being like, oh, what's what's happening with this band? Uh, is it more difficult to do that now or is it more difficult to do it kind of, you know, back then when you were playing in front of, you know, 20 people that could care less? Man, uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I would say now because I've played in front of people that have gone nuts, you know what I mean, and had a great time and it's been an amazing, like, energetic show. Right. So I maybe, maybe I have an expectation or like a an understanding of what it could be, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so then when I play a show and it's like, you just get a bunch of stairs or whatever, or people sipping their drinks in the front row, you're just kind of like, Oh man, like this is not what I, this is not what I thought it would be or right. this is what it should be. And so it's a little tougher. Um, but then again, I'm older now. So I'm like, yeah, I get it. You guys don't want to, y'all got to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> You spent you spent ten bucks on that drink. You don't want to spill any of it. It's weird too because I mean I think once you're able to have that perspective too, you also you know look at maybe what's happening within the context of whatever you're consuming from an entertainment purpose. Like you're you know you yourself like you know you have to travel. You have to spend time away from your family and all the other things that obviously you know give you happiness in your life to play in front of 40 and different people in New York or wherever the hell you're playing. And then you're just like, I'm spending time away from this to do this in front of you. Like, just show me a little bit of something. Right. Yeah. No, I've, I've, I felt that a few times where, uh, afterwards I'm just like, what am I doing? You know, we're, yeah. we're out here in the middle of Ar- Arkansas or someplace. And I'm like, this is going to suck. There's nobody here. There's no pre-sale at the door. Like <laughs> right. the venue has like a has a leak in the roof. Uh, everybody's sick or something like that. And I'm just like, what am I doing? And then you know, like for a great, great example, the last time we played Arkansas, then like 150 kids show up and they totally enjoy it, totally go crazy, buy a ton of merch or whatever. And you're kind of like, oh okay, like now I'm I'm reinvigorated and. I understand again and I feel good about it. Right, right. Yeah. Or you play a great show, you know, and you, you just have a good time with your with your buds and uh, you make lemonade out of out of a bowl of lemons, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, for sure. Um I think two last things I wanted to hit on. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the concept of obviously like, you know, being, being a fireman, I know that runs in your family. So that's obviously why you kind of chose to, uh, you know, pursue that. It, it's always one of those things too, where, you know, when you hear people that are obviously in notable bands within the punk and hardcore context, and then you hear obviously like what they do afterwards. And so it's like, it totally was the, you know, I mean, obviously it was the truth, but it was the narrative where it's like, dude, you know, Dave broke up botch because uh, he obviously he wanted to be a fireman. He wanted to save people. And it's like, <laughs> did, 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 you, did you hear did you hear uh, any of that uh, chatter from that perspective where it's like, wow, dude, you're a fireman. Like, that's insane. Yeah, I, get, I got a couple comments like that where people were very interested or, or like, you know, I think, but it's common, you know what I mean? To get that, like, oh, you're a fireman? Like, what's the gnarliest thing you ever saw? Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Or, sure. So uh, you get that a lot. But it's 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 also cool um, in the hardcore scene or music scene when uh, it's like uh, people are, are genuinely interested and in it's not like, oh, you're not in a band anymore, but now you have a record label or you're not in a band anymore, but now you tour manage or, you know what I mean? Like kind of like parlay right. your career uh, in music. Versus uh, just going into something completely different, and um, so I enjoy talking about it to people or whatever. And I think I think a lot of people are interested in, in it. You know, yeah. I don't know. 
No, for sure. I, 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 I like that perspective of like, you know, taking a complete pivot away from something that you were so involved in. Um, because obviously it's like you, you still participate and you still remember it. It's not like, you know, you became a fireman and you, uh, eschewed your entire past and are just like, Oh yeah, I was never in any of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, it's funny. Like to this day I'll be at work and dudes will be like, Man, so we were looking at some YouTube video of you, like, <laughs> over in Belgium, like, wow, dude, you know, or they gave me some looks or some, some right. like, that was a really scary video you made where some girl's ripping her face off, and what was your inspiration for that? I'm like, dude, I didn't make the video, man, I just... Right. I just wrote the song, dog. I don't make the video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Where it's like the uh, the the you know they they know you in one context, and then seeing you outside of that in another context, they're just like, "Whoa, Dave's into some weird shit, man." <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. Are you in the heavy? Are you a metal band? It's cool. So you like Goo Goo Dolls, man? That's awesome. And I'm like. <laughs> No, I'm nothing like the Goo Goo Dolls. <laughs> yeah, so, so, sorry, dude. We're not alternative adult rock. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah. And the uh, the last thing I want to hit on was just the the general, um, you know, you yourself. Obviously, like there's every reason for you to not be, uh, you know, from a real life perspective. There's no reason for you to obviously still be quote unquote involved within obviously the context of narrows and still paying attention to music in general. Um, you know, what, what obviously has kept that interest alive inside of you? Cause obviously as you, I'm sure you can point out in a lot of, you know, people that you've known throughout the years, you know, there's, you hit that, you know, that 25, 26 year old wall. And then all of a sudden they just drop everything and they just don't really pay attention to music because it doesn't resonate with them anymore. Um, why does it, why does this still resonate with you? Man, that's a, that's a tough question because it's, it's actually a lot of work, you know, to try and stay pertinent. I think when it's not like your daily life, mm-hmm. at least for my position, it is uh, my wife, well, I'm lucky enough that she's a huge music fan too. And so we, we listen to records and talk about records and stuff like that a little bit, but it's, it's really difficult. Like I just was kicking myself. Um, shoot, was it last night? No, two nights ago because I missed the Russian circles. Helms Lee show. Oh yeah. With, uh, with that tour here in Seattle and like Ken mode was playing and these bands are awesome bands that I really want to see, but I just got other shit, man. And like, you just kind of got to accept that that's, that's one of the, one of the ways it goes, I guess, where you get to, you get to buy some records and, and, you know, read some, some interviews and stuff like that online, but you don't necessarily get to take every weekend and go do this. And I guess the reason is just because you kind of have an addiction to it, I guess. I don't know. I just have always, love music in that way and i like trying to stay current with what's new but it's it's fucking hard man i have a really hard time with it that's why i have friends like rob moran i'm like dude what the what are you listening to right now you know or or frederickson or any of those guys i'll just be like what have you guys been buying like let me listen to your 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 phone or whatever because for me it's it's pretty difficult yeah yeah well i mean but just the active step of you wanting to do that obviously shows that there's you know, you're, you're not forcing yourself. You're just like, you, you obviously, like you said, you don't, there's not, there's not enough time for you to dedicate to that. So you're able to kind of lean on your friends to do that, which is awesome. So. Yeah. Yeah. And like the best part is I'll just hit up the dudes from Hydrohead and be like, Hey, send me some releases. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if I've, 
if I make them feel bad enough that they actually send me some records and right. I get to listen to some new music. You're, you're like, hey, in the in the form of any any uh, any back royalties owed, just send me some new records. We're cool. Yeah, yeah. Seriously, you can take this twenty three dollars back, and instead I'll take six LPs. <laughs> so, so you're the re- you, you're you're basically the reason they went out of business. That's kind of what that's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, dude. I, dude, I ruined Hydrahead. I ruined Initial Records. I, I'm sure I ruined. That's true. Um, Fueled by Ramen too, right? Yeah. Oh, Fueled by Ramen. Yeah, they went under fast. That was easy. That was easy. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you hanging out, Dave. And uh, yeah, I I, I I had a lot of fun with this. So thank you. So there was Dave, and uh, yeah, thanks to Dave. I really appreciate that. Uh, he didn't need to uh, accommodate my uh, my pestering, but he did, and that was great. And you benefit from it. So the producer of our show is Tom Richfield. I love him so much. I really I use the words love in capital letters. L-O-V-E. Oh, so much love. Anyways, visit propertyofzach.com. Visit 100wordspodcast.com. Email the show. Follow us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook. Just, just do everything with the show. That's all I ask, you know? It's, it's a pretty simple ask, right? Anyways, uh, the rest of this month, we have some awesome, awesome guests. Like I was saying, the theme is pioneers, luminaries within the context of, uh, of punk and hardcore. Next week is Justin Pearson from The Locust, All Leather, Retox. Basically, he's done a ton of stuff. Super interesting guy. And then uh, wrapping up the month is Sean Ingram from Coalesce. So... Man, for those of you that were involved in sort of mid-90s to late-90s punk and hardcore, just this month is made for you. So anyways, until next week, be safe, everybody. <laughs>